Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 86 for April 5th, 2007, Cross-Site Scripting, Part 2. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, our second episode of the week, because we had a special on uh, the problem with the animated cursor vulnerability that was on uh, Monday. Trust you've solved your problems with that. Steve Gibson's back now to resume our conversation about cross-site scripting. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. It what's, is. What's uh, the update on the uh, animated cursor, by the way? Exactly. I was just going to say it's, it's worth making sure that everyone has run Windows Update. Um, they Microsoft did, as we expected and as they had stated, push out a an out-of-cycle, single vulnerability fix just for this problem on Tuesday, which would have been the third. And so that that's a week earlier than their normal second Tuesday of the month patch cycle, which I, apparently they're still going to have a bunch of other stuff that, that they're going to be doing next Tuesday on April 10th. But I want to make sure that everyone's got that. So um, you know, it it turns out that it's being widely exploited. There are there's now a lot of use of it on the net, hoping to find users who are not updating, who don't have Windows Update turned on, who haven't you know visited Windows Update and and one way or another gotten themselves patched. So, I imagine there's going to be you know for a month or so uh, a strong effort to continue to install malware into unsuspecting users' machines through this vector and you know it may never go away completely as these things you know tend not to you have to think that there was this window of vulnerability that the, the vulnerability has been out there for three months uh-huh. uh, microsoft patched it april 3rd and there were exploits happening as early as march 30th or even earlier i mean that's the first we heard of it so well that exactly that, some, that must mean that some many many maybe millions of computers were bit and actually, I got email specifically from people after our special podcast saying they knew of, I mean, personal knowledge of specific instances wow. where people got malware through this vector. So, you know, we called it a zero-day exploit, as we do, when it's discovered, when, when the, the, the first discovery of it publicly is its exploitation, What's annoying, as as I mentioned a couple days ago, is that Microsoft was sitting on this thing. Now they say they were planning to patch it on the 10th, which I I assume they were because they knew it was a bad problem. But they were not in any real big hurry for the last three months or four months. So it's like, uh, okay, you know, this is the frustration that I hear from many security researchers, you know, like the guys at EI they they at one point they were like showing a calendar of how long yeah. things they had informed Microsoft of had just been ignored by Microsoft and and you know known vulnerabilities remaining unpatched for like 6 9 months even well and i've heard, i've been hearing this from security experts for a long time i mean this is a very common complaint about Microsoft and i understand that Microsoft doesn't want to push patches it hasn't tested because especially now that people have automatic patching turned on, there's a risk in that. Well, and in fact, I got a wacky error message about a, a conflict of address space on a DLL. I think, it was, I think it was the HTML help DLL, but I'm not sure. But it was after the system rebooted on an XP machine where I had applied the patch. And I know I'm not alone because I saw some other reports. Actually, I had I received some other reports of the same thing. So there was some sort of a little oopsie, you know, interaction that, that, that got away from them. And you can see Microsoft really pushing for what they call responsible disclosure. They're like they're big into responsible disclosure now to remind everyone that they don't want 
irresponsible disclosure, which is to say, you know, they don't want to be pushed or hurried. Yeah. And and that might some might characterize as irresponsible, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, EI, as long as we're mentioning them, uh, and I'd love to get your opinion at some point down the road, uh, does offer a free, uh, I guess it's a firewall. Uh, it's called Blink. The yes, Blink. Blink is a, yes, Blink is a very well-known and, and reputable tool, which is sort of their their prophylactic around windows which which they maintain and it's like their main deal is this this really nice well they also have something called retina which you know everything of course is in the i e y e theme so you got blink and retina and so forth um uh i guess it deals with windows cataracts i'm not sure but (laughs) Security blindness on the part of Microsoft. <laughs> so uh, this is, uh, it's hard to just exactly figure out what it is. It sounds like it's uh, its an antivirus. It sounds like it's a f- anti-spyware. It also sounds like it does some internet, internet security. Uh, uh, it sounds okay. like it would be a very good choice for a well, lot of people. Consider this. It, it has the same sort of auto-updating features. And they inform Blink. That is, EI informs Blink of the stuff they find when they find it. Right. So so during this somewhat frightening um uh I can't think of the word the word I'm looking for this this sort of refractory period during which Microsoft knows about a problem but hasn't yet fixed it. Well, the EI guys that know about the problem, they have fixed right. it in Blink. So Blink users were protected for these the from from the during this this whole period of time from December 20th of 06 when they informed Microsoft all the way through now. So that's a very cool thing. I mean, you'd like to have that kind of preemptive protection. And then, of course, once Microsoft fixes it, um, I'm not sure whether the, the EI guys remove that rule from Blink or leave it around. I would right. imagine they leave it around because it's, you know, it's a good thing to protect yourself from. So it's like, in, in, whereas the AV people are often always playing catch up you could argue that that ei with their blink tool is really leading the pack of course there are other vulnerabilities that they don't know about that other security researchers are reporting to microsoft and i'm it's not clear to me how active they are in you know trying to reverse engineer engineer those things and put that protection into blink as well one would certainly think that it makes sense for them to do so so you wouldn't you 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 would recommend blink uh of course if you're running another antivirus or security software you probably shouldn't mix um and so that's the question is blink a full service antivirus or just a you know purpose-built antivirus to and i haven't looked at it that closely but you know these guys are down in in southern california not not far from me when we we might consider getting them on the show and talking about their stuff because i mean they're they're good i trust them Oh, they are, and I've also met them at a couple user group meetings, and you know, they're. Just, I mean, they've really got the technology. So uh, the the guts, the good news, it's free. Windows two thousand tablet PC and media center. The bad news, it doesn't come on Vista, and the really bad thing is, it's the first serious Vista vulnerability. Here we are, not two months into the Vista era, and already a serious unpatched uh, exploit um, that's been there since the beginning, since Vista shipped. Um, that that doesn't bode well, frankly. I mean, we, the the to me, the sole recommendation for Vista is improved security, and if it can't do that, well, I don't know. Well, it's certainly the case that this is old code. This has been around for a long time. In you know, f- for it to affect all versions of Windows, including Windows two thousand. I did note something interesting, and that is that apparently it's. XP Service Pack 2 that is a, yeah. that is affected, but not presumably original XP and Service Pack 1. Huh. Huh. So it, it sounds like something that got introduced at somewhere along the way. And it's worth mentioning also that this ANI, I mean, if that, this animator cursor issue, if that sounds familiar to people, it's because there have been security problems there in the past that Microsoft so so Microsoft in fixing those may have created this or didn't find this one when they were in the code fixing other ones but this is a this, this has been a vector for for trouble that we've seen before good to know and uh, we'll keep an eye on it of course that's one of the reasons we do these special updates and we uh, it's kind of our commitment to you when we see an issue like this we will push out a special edition of security now uh, that's a good reason to subscribe to the podcast not rely on manual downloads or listening on the website and it is it is 
Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt well, you. But you, I, I, you can do that through the through through iTunes, of course, and uh, we have a podcast feed of this. As I guess what I'm saying, subscribe to it. Right, right. I, I, I did want to remind people though that IE7, with its enhanced protection turned on, was not vulnerable to this. So that is an aspect of Vista's enhanced security, which which does bear, uh, you know, a, a, against this kind of problem. Whatever it was in detail that was causing the trouble. Turning on the, uh, the IE7, ex, you know, extra protection that is available in Vista did prevent this. So is that on by I think, default? Uh, I don't remember I whether it's on. It, it's in the standard security settings and sort of innocuous looking. I sort of think it's not on by default, actually. That, that's because my sense again, of it. It breaks a lot uh, of sites. That's the problem is that yeah. you start getting – in fact, someone sent me just recently a DEP error that IE was was kicking up. And I think it was under XP, but I'm sure it was under XP because he sent me a screenshot of the dialog box. And so um, – but that was IE causing some sort of trouble, which is, again, it's why we're moving very slowly towards tightening things up. But, you know, I'm glad to see Microsoft really is putting pressure on on the world to make this stuff more secure. Uh, let's see. We want to uh, any other uh, addenda or additions before we address cross cross site scripting. Well, yeah, I did want to talk about uh, follow up a little bit on last week's uh, discussion of of ebook stuff. Uh, I know that there's a strong interest in it. Uh, the thing that brought me into the topic, as you'll remember, last week was that we I've had a lot of feedback from people saying, "Hey, you know, what other authors do you like? I, you know, I loved your last recommendation of Peter Hamilton. Who else?" And so, of course, I talked about uh, Michael McCullum uh, at sci-fi-az.com, sci-fi Arizona, as another one of my favorite authors. He and I have had some email back and forth because I've been interested in in figuring out, basically, what it would take to move his electronically downloadable books over to the Sony. And, in fact, you'll remember, Leo, that when we talked, you had had the Sony for a while that is the new Sony uh, ebook reader, or they call the Sony reader. It's the PRS-500, and I was expecting mine to arrive the following day. It did, and I'm now converted. I mean, I I like this experience. Um, I've picked up my Palm that I was using for years, various Palms, but, but the one I was most recently using, and just sort of looked at the screen again and then looked back at the Sony, and I got to say, I mean, the... It would be nice if the Sony had a an optionally turn onable uh, backlight of some sort that was available, or maybe like edge lighting or something, so that you didn't have to to bring your own lighting. I know that you bought the book light. I also did from from Sony side. It's the thing that, that clips on the top and sort of reaches around, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's got just uh, two very bright white LEDs that do a great job of illuminating this thing. But but overall. I really like this. Now, I mean, I've got a bunch of complaints with it, but I'm also an early adopter, as as I know you are. And I remember Sony's journey through the mini disc. Their very oh, first, yeah. <laughs> their very first mini disc recorder that I owned was, you know, sort of a big black portable blob with a big battery pack that that, that connected to the outside. And I mean, it worked, but it was first generation it had that feeling and then a year later they had one that with like three times the battery life and smaller batteries and more features and, and it was smaller and then another year later even better and another year late, later even better and i mean to the point now where their current mini disc recorders are just these gorgeous little things i mean really refined and and so i i think that this first reader has the same sort of feeling i mean it is it is new technology. It's using this e-ink technology, a so-called electrophoretic display. Um, and, and the way it works, I've learned a lot about it since because I've been curious, is uh, I described it incorrectly last week as spheres that rotated either their white hemisphere or their black hemisphere forward, which is actually one of the e-ink technologies, but it's not the one this one uses. And have you noticed ghosting? From like the prior page, yeah. When this you is, turn there, the there are a couple of complaints that we all have. I talked to Patrick Norton about this because he's a, he was really high on this as well, and we all agree the controls aren't great. And this this little flicker you get when you turn a page is slightly annoying. Yes, um, it, it turns out that Sony there there are different ways to refresh this technology. Uh, what's actually happening is that the 
the the the pixel resolution that is the you know the pixels we're used to thinking of in terms of what's on screen is 800 by 600 so it's the you know sort of the original uh what svga resolution um although of course it's in portrait orientation as opposed to the 4 by 3 original vga landscape orientation and for the size of that screen that's a pretty high resolution that's a decent oh and leo i mean i've been very critical of the i mean i've I've stared at the screen with a very critical eye looking closely as closely as my eyes will focus on the characters and man they're beautiful because they are they are anti-aliased characters so what's actually happening here is that this screen has an has an ultra high particulate resolution i mean down in the something or other microns and there are tiny tiny little particles of titanium i think it's titanium dioxide which is which is a white particle and it's embedded in a in in, in a dark um uh hydrocarbon like oil essentially oh, emulsion really? huh. and so and so what happens is when these particles are pushed to the back you see darkness there and when they're pulled to the front you see their whiteness there and so but the idea is so th- there's this super high resolution surface i mean really high resolution and then there are charging pads on the front and back transparent of course on the front and not necessarily so on the back which put an electrostatic field across a square region of all of these particles so the point is that the ghosting is when not all of them move all the way back or all the way front when you've gone when you've switched one of these pixels rectangular regions from black to white or black or, or white to black so it turns out that that there are there's like a quick change that sony can do or a more extensive change where it's sort of like you know how hard do you shake the etch a sketch? <laughs> it's sort of you know it, that's sort of a, a, an analogy for uh-huh, it. you know do you want to uh-huh. really shake it hard uh-huh. and like get get it all the way erased or do you just are you kind of for for reasons of UI would you rather just do it more quickly because a little bit of the past that won't really annoy you right and so Sony has different strategies for this that they've been evolving. Um, I'm not minding that screen change. It does take a little, yes, it takes a little getting used to. And in fact, because there's a little bit of delay, I'll now hit the next page button while I'm reading the last line of the screen, knowing Uh. that, that you know, it's going to take a while for it for it to catch up with me. You're a smart monkey. You've learned. You've adapted. So you know, I mean, there are a number. Why of isn't things. it not a paper white? I, I, that's my biggest complaint is that it, that it's not as high I, contrast as it, as it, as it could. I be. completely agree, um, and I think it's just that the nature of the particles, the particle density, the particle color, you know, and probably the fact that it, it's basically very white thing suspended in a dark medium. Right. Even when you pull them all to the front, you're still going to have you know some of the dark goo that's around them. It's going to be lowering their their overall re- re- reflectivity. Right. One of the things that I have noticed is that, unlike a book, which like or like regular book paper, like especially paperback paper that sort of tends toward to be a little bit yellow, this is this is almost metallically reflective. In other words, it tends to reflect the color of the light on it. Oh. So so that for example, when I'm under incandescent light. It it has sort of a you know a yellower feel, and when I'm out when I'm outside, it has a much bluer sort of look. And when I'm under um, white LEDs that sort of have that 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 real sort of blue crispness, I mean it looks just fantastic. So I'm 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 pleased with it. There are a whole bunch of UI things. You know, you you talked about last week about not being really happy about the page turning. I completely agree with you. I'm I'm still having to kind of figure out how to hold it so that my thumb or a finger can rest on the buttons. Also, it's wrong that paging forward is given no more preference over paging backward. Right. When you, that's when what you, you think do of, mostly. Yeah. Exactly. How, how often do you turn a page back? Exactly. I mean, sometimes you'll like you'll, you'll if you if the paragraph on the page you're reading. Wait a minute. It does make sense. Or you got interrupted while you were reading. Right. You'll have to go back to it. That's to, probably like, one you know, time in ten. Oh, more if that I would say more like one in a hundred, right? Uh, or so maybe a 50, big button knows? that says next page. Yes, yeah. and, and sure, you definitely want to be able to go back, but.
but you don't have to go back equally to going forward, which is what they offer you right now. Right. So again, I and, and I want to remind people. I mean, this thing is what is it, three hundred forty nine dollars? Right. It's cheap. So. It, uh, well, okay. Except I've, 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 you, know, you and I each have one. There are people who have said, and I completely understand. That's ten hardcover books, and you could put a hundred on there. Okay, from that standpoint, yes, it, it, it is. The cheap. books aren't cheap. The books are only slightly cheaper than the hardcover. Well, what stuff. I am absolutely sure will happen, and and this is always what Sony does. I mean, the first Walkman to the Walkman now, the first mini disc player to the mini disc player now. I mean, anything they do, it starts out big and bulky, sort of almost proof of concept. You know, it's like the engineers say, "We can do this. Let us try. Let us try." And, you know, and so, and so they're going to prove themselves. And I, and so I would say to anybody who will be, who's like annoyed by Apple with the iPod phenomenon, where you buy one and then next week they come out with the one you wish you'd waited for. Right. But, you know, you are, you didn't know they were going to come out with one next, you know, a, a, a week later. Right. Um, certainly we're going to see the price of this thing fall. It is Linux based. There's a bunch of, stuff that they've left in there that they didn't need to leave in there. Um, it's running Montevista, I think it is, Montevista Linux. Huh. Um, and, Must be an embedded uh, and, Linux. Uh, the, the only, yeah. My only question would be if it's selling well enough for Sony to uh, pursue it. It may be. I mean, I don't. do you get the sense that it's taking the world by storm? I don't. I have no sense for that yet, yeah. either way. And, and, and <laughs> so that could be a bad sign. I mean, we know Sony is, is unusually... Uh, defensive of their products. Look how long they've kept Minidisc alive. But I, at the same time, if it's not doing well, I, I don't know if they would. Uh... Well, and it is it is DRM'd again. Right. I mean, that, they, that that's the other real annoyance. Although I have to say that I think, and you would know this better than I because I just read this once, that, that when you purchase a book from the Sony Connect store, you have like five or six yeah. devices that you're able to install it on. Now, remember, the computer's so, one. Yes, the computer counts as one, but still, that seems very liberal to me. It's I mean, much it's much like, like the iTunes store. I wouldn't say. I mean, how many devices are you going to put that thing on? Right, right. Um, I like the Palm model. Actually, the Palm Reader. When, when you download from them, you need to unlock it using the credit card number you use to purchase. Right. And their their theory, of course, is you're going to be reluctant to give <laughs> your credit card number, you know, to, to anybody else in order to unlock the book you bought on their on their reader. So and so I think that's sort of a nice clever, you know, inhibition for piracy. Right. But yeah. um and I will say that Leo, I have never ever seen the battery charge indicator come off of full i know I, I neither have i it goes a long time and and also books tend to be about 350 360k you know like an average size book yeah uh, which means that the 100 megs which is free in this thing will i mean it's all the books you will ever need to carry at one time so the only reason I can see for using the the um, the SD card and the memory stick again, another Sony proprietary technology, would be for music. And as a as an experiment, a couple mornings ago, I did put a bunch of music on it, and it's the only thing. It was it was playing music. It was the only way I was ever able to get the the battery full meter yeah. off of high. How does so the music it, sound? Because I haven't listened to music on it. <laughs> sounded absolutely fine. All right. And, and, and in fact, if, if I didn't already own, you know, every iPod and a shuffle and all these Can things. Can you read a book and listen to music at the same time? Well, my music. I've got this weird sort of no, no, space. But I mean, it, will, that, will, that, will that technology allow you to play a song while you're reading? Oh, it's designed for that. Oh, see, that's not so bad. Absolutely. Oh, that would be nice. I, mean, I could put some classical music on there and read. That's, that's exactly right. There, There's an artist uh, called Liquid Mind that I really like. And it's just, it's very, you know, ethereal, interesting, sort of ambient Perfect in the background. For Perfect for a plane. Yes. Yes. And so, I mean, so this works perfectly. You you stick your headphones in, you go and, and choose what music you want. Now, they don't currently, at least I don't think they currently have any sort of like playlist facility and they sort the music based on the name in the ID3 tag. It's kind of an afterthought in other words. Yeah, exactly. Although again, everything about this is first generation. Right. You know, you are able to create book collections as they call them in or in order to create 
in order to provide some organization of, of, of authors and books by collection. There's no facility for that over on the audio side. So what I did is because they, they don't even sort based on file name, they, they, based on, they sort based on ID3 uh, tagging, I went in and edited my tags in order to force the sort right. order that I wanted because it always plays the in same. the order. Right. Yeah, exactly, in, in, in the same order. But, I mean, it, it really works. You plug your headphones into the bottom, you, 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 you turn on you know, music, and then you go right back to reading, and everything works great. What kind of life do you get with the music? I don't have any sense for it because um, I had never charged it, and I've been using it extensively now for nearly a week. And when I plugged the headphones in and started playing music, not long after, I first saw uh-huh. the highest charge bar disappear. Okay. But but I'd already uh, I'd already um, you know been using it for days right. without even a thought for charging. I mean that right. that I really like, and I have to say, I mean it's the the text is so large, it's very readable. I mean I'm not trying to promote our listeners to go purchase this the way I really wanted to recommend Michael's books. Um, and by the way, he will, before long, have his books also offered in Sony uh, reader Thank, format. Thanks I'm, to you. You've, you've figured out the, uh, the way to do it. Yes, the industry is a mess at the moment. And I could, I could do it now with a lot of jockeying around, but I'd rather work out the way for him to be able to convert his books over. So, right. And he's, he's, he's absolutely demonstrated an interest in doing so. For example, he made Gibraltar Earth available to me uh, in a format. Basically, he exported what he had in HTML, and I found some, some, some really wacky tools. I mean, Python and Java and all this m- junk mixed together. But I'm reading Gibraltar Earth now on the Sony Reader. Wow. And so, I mean, it's, it's completely workable, and I'm, I'm really pleased. And, of course, I'm rereading it. Because I'm excited to go to, to the sequel, which is Gibraltar's <laughs> son. But but I, there was some confusion. I wanted to make sure people knew that if I were to recommend a first series to read of his, I think the Antares trilogy, which I first recommended to you, Leo, it's just it's just fantastic. Well, I so. have both, and uh, I was a little disappointed because they're unprotected PDFs, which in theory you can play on the Sony Reader, but it turns out you can't just put any old PDF on there. And uh, and so uh, with your help, I hope he'll reencode them so I can read them. I'm looking forward to bringing it to Vancouver with me. That's the main reason I bought this. I didn't want to. I, w- I found myself carrying a giant Judas Unchained, the giant uh, Peter Hamilton book on the plane weighs about eight pounds, and I thought, you know, I need something lighter for this stuff. Yep. Let's uh, before we get to cross-site scripting, I just want to mention uh, once again our great friends at Nerds on Site at IWantToBeANerd.com. They are sponsors of this podcast, and they are looking for more nerds. It's kind of a neat idea. These guys aren't, uh, you know, they're not the company. They, they're they a guild, really, uh, of independent contractors. So you're still in business for yourself, but not by yourself. So you focus on your passion and not the burdens of running a business. It sounds like a great idea. I wish there was something like this for podcasting. Uh, there are nerds on site in seven, I think eight countries now. Canada, USA, Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, and Bolivia, all over the world. Uh, if you are an expert, PC to Mac, Cisco to Oracle, Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales trainees, uh, trainers, uh, security experts, antivirus gurus. They particularly like those folks who like to tear apart, build, and troubleshoot their own systems. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. Nerds on site, IWantToBeANerd.com. Well, and Leo, that's sort of a perfect segue for a fun mention of Spinrite, too. I... I didn't understand until I read this that this was one of the nerds who had sent me a note. Oh, really? But he, yeah, but, 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 and so you'll, you'll see as I read this from the context that that must be who he is. He says, I would just like to share an experience I had using Spinrite last week. I had a PC in my office, and this is a different sort of Spinrite testimonial too, so as you'll see, it's a different aspect of Spinrite. I had a PC in my office that I suspected had a hard drive going bad. I ran check disk on it several times, and it found nothing. The PC kept blue screening and freezing up at the worst possible times. Well, you know, like there's a good time to get a blue screen. <laughs> so I decided it was a good time to try out Spinrite. I started to do a scan and was ready to let it run, as I have heard other nerds say it takes a while to do its thing. Within a minute or two, a screen popped up from Spinrite saying that this drive was in danger of complete failure. 
cancel the tests, and back up any data as the drive may not survive the testing process. And that's something that, that's cool. That's something cool that, that I built into Spinrite 6 is it's while it's doing its stuff, it's constantly polling the drive's smart subsystem. And as we know from a podcast we did on this, you know, smart is not as smart as we would like it to be, but it has the ability of really raising a red flag and saying, okay, we are in serious trouble here. So that will never false positive. It generally do, you know, doesn't save you the way it'd be nice if it did. But since Spinrite is monitoring it all the time, if Spinrite sees that its own use of the drive is causing the drive to panic, it'll, it'll stop and say to the user, look, uh, there may not be enough of your drive left here wow, to, wow. to save. So, and so uh, c- continuing with his note, it's, he says, um, I was a little skeptical to say the least. But, but to save time, I put in a new drive and started reloading Windows. Just for kicks, I put the, quote, bad, unquote, drive, he has in quotes, in another PC and started Spinrite again to see what it would, it would do. About five minutes into the test, I heard a very familiar clunking sound oh, boy. <laughs> coming from the definitely bad hard drive. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he says, you don't need to be a nerd to know that's not good. Now, he we, says the, now we know. He's come out of the closet. All right. <laughs> yep. He said, the drive crashed hard. Ooh. And then he says, it's great to know we have access to a product, meaning he, the nerds, because I've, I've done a deal with, with the nerds guys to make you know, SpinRite available to them, a, a site license, essentially, which is one of the things we offer. Uh, that we can rely on to give us accurate results and thus make us better techs. My thanks to Steve Gibson and the folks at Spinrite for saving me a bunch of time. That's great. Dave Everett in Michigan. That's great. You should you should um, add that you know nerd certified or tested <laughs> tested by nerds <laughs> it's, all over the country. Inspected by nerd number five. Uh, all right, let's get to cross site scripting, shall we? Uh, this is. Something we talked a little bit about last week. We kind of got our start, but now we're going to go into some greater detail, as as we as you are wont to do. You like to yes. set us up, then knock it down. Well, and so last last week we sort of talked about the generic problem of what I would what I would call stepping back a little bit, sort of overall web website or web code injection, where through various mistakes made in servers. And in the the sort of like the next generation web code that is now becoming so popular, in other words, to say scripting, uh, all kinds. (laughs) Folks, just in case you didn't know, Steve doesn't like scripting. (laughs) Well, all kinds of problems are being created now to to give rather than just saying that and making a blanket statement. I, I thought I would start out by giving people a sense for recently discovered problems with prominent and less prominent web-based software. So I started enumerating them. I thought, okay, we'll just go for 2007. You know, what's been found in 2007? Well, there was so much trouble that I said, okay, forget this. Let's just, let's just do March. Let's just do March because March had tw- had 28 problems wow. that were identified Where do you go to find this stuff um well the the really terrific uh resource i continually use is uh the sans institute mm-hmm. um you know the sans securities guys um i'm on their mailing list i get notices of this and it's one of the things that has always had the issue of cross-site scripting on my mind is something i wanted to talk about in this podcast it's because i'm i scan it every week and i see what's going on and you know sure enough every single week there's there's six or seven or eight or nine you know new cross-site scripting vulnerabilities that they're reporting and so it's it's like a constant annoyance that i'm seeing this going on and and i wanted to you know again we've never talked about this before so i thought it was a a topic really worth mentioning so i'm going to very quickly as quickly as i can zipped through just in March what was found. And to give people, it'll give you a sense for, you know, obscure companies and some well-known companies like IBM and Oracle are mentioned in here as having vulnerabilities and also sort of a sense for the nature of the problem. So the first one here is 
is Build to Go News Manager blog is a blog application. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting issues because it fails to sanitize user-supplied input. We'll be hearing that phrase a lot. Build to Go News Manager version 1.0 is affected. Then we have OpenHRM um, uh, is a human resource management application. The application is prone to multiple unspecified vulnerabilities on the login page of the application. OpenHRM versions prior to 2.1 Alpha 5 are affected. So it sounds like they found out about that and they fixed it. Webmin is a web-based Unix system oh, yeah. administration interface. Everybody uses this. I use this. Imp- uh-huh. Implemented in Perl. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting issues because okay. it fails to sanitize user-supplied input to multiple unspecified parameters of the chooser.cgi script. Oh, Webmin versions prior to 1.330 are affected. WordPress, ever heard of that? Yeah. Yeah, huh? WordPress allows users to generate news pages and weblogs dynamically. It is exposed to a cross-site scripting issue because it fails to properly sanitize user-supplied input to the post parameter of the WPA or sorry, WP admin slash post.php script. Hmm. WordPress version 2.1.1 is affected. WebPress is a web-based publishing application. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting issues because it fails to sanitize user-supplied input. Version 2.1.1 is affected. Uh, this looks like looks like Dakibo, D-O-C-E-B-O, is a content management system, a CMS application. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting issues because it fails to sanitize user-supplied input <laughs> of index.php and modules slash HTML frame chat slash index.php parameters. Versions 3.05 and earlier are affected. Photostand is a photo blogging application. The application is exposed to cross-site scripting issue because it fails to properly sanitize user-supplied input to the a parameter of the index.php script. Photostand version 1.2 is affected. PHP Web Gallery is an image gallery application. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting issues because it fails to sanitize user input. Version 1.4.1 is affected. Active Calendar. I'm, now, I'm going to stop going through this, but I'm going to say Active Calendar, web-based calendar creation. Track is a wiki and issue tracking system. Uh, the Dine, the Dynalians program is a guestbook application. That's got problems. Lazarus, Lazarus guestbook is a web-based guestbook application. It's got problems. Vcard Pro is a virtual greeting card application. Oh, goodness. Uh, that's got problems. Virtue Mart is an e-commerce application. Uh, the application is prone to multiple cross-site scripting issues because it fails to sanitize users by the input. Unspecified parameters to the PS underscore part, or I'm sorry, cart.php and Virtue Mart underscore parser PHP scripts are vulnerable. Uh, Direct Admin is a web administration panel. Oracle Portal is a portal application integrated into Oracle's application server software. The application is exposed to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> IBM Rational ClearQuest is a software development management application is exposed to cross-site scripting, blah, blah, blah. Multiple Cisco products are exposed to cross-site scripting issues because they fail to properly sanitize users by input. Input Horde, H-O-R-D-E, framework is a web logging application the application is exposed to multiple H, you know, HTTP cross-site scripting, blah, blah, blah. H, uh, PHP, PH Project, K spelled J-E-C-T, is a modular web-based application to share information and documents. I think it probably shares a little more information and a little more documents <laughs> than it was intended to. Mind Touch Decky Wiki is a file server and intranet tool. Oracle, oh, again, Oracle Application Server uh, has a problem. Here's another WordPress PHP underscore self problem. Uh, Interstage Application Server has a problem. Overlay Weaver is a web-based search engine that's not happy. eBitWizzy 
I'm not kidding. This is oh, all no, sorry. in the month of March, by the way. This I, is just March. Yeah. I get, I was going to do the you know no, 07. Glad you didn't. I don't think we exactly. have a long I, enough podcast. I think everybody's glad. They don't yeah. have enough time to download this. A bit wizzy is a, I got 3 left. Is a bit wizzy is a PHP script that uses wizzywig.js to create and edit web pages through a wizzywig interface. The application is exposed to multiple cross-site scripting and directory traversal issues because it fails to sufficiently sanitize users' blind input to the D parameter. Mephisto Blog uh, is a web log application implemented in Ruby. The application is exposed to blah, 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 multiple cross-site scripting, blah, blah. CoCounter, I'm sorry, CC Counter is a website hit counter application. It is exposed to cross-site scripting issues. Ah. Well, one that's, thing that uh, it becomes obvious is that most of these are uh, web-based tools. Uh, that's, that's of course, be- why they're at risk, because anybody can use these tools and enter in data, and then the data can be uh, overflowed. Well, that's exactly right. So there's a couple things this means. Essentially, you know, look how long it took us to get Microsoft up to speed right. on security. Right. Now, now what's happened is, essentially... Because of Web 2.0 and PHP and Ruby and JavaScript and all these other tools that are allowing and empowering, you know, in all fairness, empowering web guys, webmasters and administrators to to create really amazing active websites, suddenly now they're all having to be security experts and they're not. Right. So so the problem is that any situation where it's possible for user supplied input to contain scripting itself that is that's the whole that's a whole injection deal the whole cross side scripting problem is that that users are able to provide stuff which the application will then digest and perhaps show to them or to other users mm-hmm. and in the process their browsers, which are running scripting as part of what they do to offer these features, their browsers will run the code that that malicious creators have written, and bang, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You don't need buffer overflows. This depth won't protect you. SSL won't protect you. Basically, the the the, the fundamental problem is that that the way web page scripting has been designed from the start is it's 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 you could argue it's too powerful because there's a free mixture of web visual content and and interpreted content mixed right in that is right in the middle for example of a web page you could say open uh, open bracket script close bracket and then you could say document dot cookie and then open bracket backslash script uh, close bracket in order to close the script. What would happen is when your browser is is showing you the, this page, it encounters that script tag and immediately, without any requirement, s- switches on the script interpreter, which reads document dot cookie. Well, that's a variable which the interpreter replaces with your cookie for that site and then it continues so what what the user will see is blah 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 they're reading along and then they will see the cookie which the, which is supposed to be and and up to now has been secret between them and the the, the remote server their browser understands that it's okay to show this cookie because after all it's it's a page coming from this remote server. Well, that power, the power of being able to embed script anywhere, and you can even embed it in in the arguments of queries. You know, the famous get query, where which search engines use, for example, in order to send information back, you're able to put script tags even there, and the browser will dutifully interpret whatever the script is. And run it on the spot, replacing whatever you've got with with um, with current variables. So it turns out that that there's a way, and it's I mean it's well documented. All the hackers know about how to do this. Where if you provide the URL for a malicious server, 
as part of that little script, you can have the malicious server receive the cookie for a server, for, for, for whatever server has served the page, which means it completely breaks this notion of cookies being safe for authentication and for session tracking. I mean, for example, you know, when I'm using eBay, I choose to the, the little check mark of leave, you know, leave me logged in for some length of time until I explicitly log out. The same thing with Amazon. I mean, Amazon is smart in, for example, uh, if I try to add a new mailing address for books, it makes me type my password in again, which is a good thing because what cross-site scripting does is it, it absolutely allows session hijacking where because of the fact that cookies are what's used to maintain state as we move from page to page on a site, anybody else returning my cookie will be believed to be me. So, so you can easily see a scenario where, for example, if Amazon were to have a, a cross-site scripting flaw, it would be possible for third parties to capture Amazon user cookies on the fly while they were logged in, immediately open a session using their cookie, thus completely impersonating them to Amazon, and then buy a whole bunch of stuff using their credit card because that's all stored by Amazon and you're never required to, to, to enter that again, and then add a mailing address other than where you want, you know, other than your default or any that you've used in the past, and basically buy anything they want and have it sent to them, and the, and the user would know nothing about it until their credit card bill comes at the end of the month, and they go, wait a minute, I didn't spend $5,000 on Amazon.com, but by that time, the damage is done and the goods have been shipped. Mm. And so, I mean, so this is the power of this kind of exploit. Now, it's true that the only credentials which will leak through this are those of the site which has the problem. So, for example, as far as we know, you know, and certainly in March, Amazon.com had no trouble, nor did eBay. But they have his, eBay has notoriously, historically had cross-site scripting problems mm. and was, was abused like this. So, so what happens is, you know, you, you definitely need to hope that your bank doesn't have cross-site scripting vulnerabilities because this is the kind of exploit that you know that would really concern people who are doing electronic banking and of course the double whammy is you typically have to have scripting enabled in your browser in order to use the banking site so i mean the the, the beauty of all of this is if you had no scripting in your browser your browser would ignore that start script end script tag it would skip right over it and you'd see something missing on the page but there's no vulnerability the vulnerability comes from the from the client browser which is being tricked because of the this leakage of unintended text from you know from a trusted website like Amazon or eBay or your favorite blogging site or whatever you're using where a hacker has been able to inject their own text into that flow when that happens you can get into trouble and so the this is not a problem like well for example like three days ago we had the, the huge problem with with windows animated cursor exploit that was going to be you know immediately exploited well, and, and was immediately exploited essentially worldwide instead these kinds of vulnerabilities because they are specific to applications you know specific vulnerabilities and specific applications they tend to be more targeted attacks that is it, it doesn't make sense to try to send everybody uh, a, a, a link to a known pro uh, problematic blog um, and, and have them go there because you know they may never have been there before they haven't established an identity they don't have any logon credentials to be stolen so that doesn't make any sense but you can merge these with with social engineering attacks for example knowing that a site is vulnerable and wanting to be up to some mischief you could for example if it was a blogging site or, or an online forum site you could start chatting with people find out you know a little bit about who they are 
and then send them a link saying, hey, you know, check this out. And when they click on the link, essentially, uh, that goes to one of the forum pages where this where there's a scripting, a known scripting vulnerability that will cause them to divulge, to cause their browser to divulge their credentials to this third party, which allows them to then log on as that first party user and, and, and essentially pretend to be them on the blogging site wow. and cause all kinds of mischief. That's interesting. That's an interesting combination of social engineering and hacking, which more and more, exactly. that's what you're seeing. I mean, that's, that's the, that, you want to get the job done. That's how to do it. Well, exactly. And so for, for, the, for the targeted kinds of attacks, um, and for example, I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about China deliberately attacking the, uh, the Defense Department, there, those are targeted attacks where they will take known cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. And, and remember that one of the real gotchas with this is that it, it, is, a, it is a firewall-penetrating attack, meaning that if Somebody from outside, for example, outside the United States, I don't want, mean to pick on China by any means, but that does seem to be where the bandwidth of these attacks is, is, is emanating largely. Important, but by someone, the way, you point out the bandwidth, but not necessarily the attackers, since they can exactly. spoof, spoof any location, obviously. Exactly. Yeah. Or bounce through proxies in China and, right. and actually be located anywhere else. It may just mean that's where the most unprotected machines are. We don't know what it means, really. Well, and historically, when we look at the demographics of the machines that have been infected by worms... China has been a large infection target, meaning that if nothing else, their Windows machines were not being kept currently patched. Right. So, you know, whether they were legitimate or not is, is impossible to guess. But, but so a, 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 a email from, from uh, like scattered across the, uh, the Defense Department containing a URL to an intranet server inside of the security perimeter of the Defense Department would then have preferred access to whatever was going on. And, and even there, by, by allowing the browser to trust the intranet server, the, the, the cross-site scripting vulnerability is able to, to use those, those enhanced power credentials in, or, enable, in order to get up to much more mischief internally and essentially... A, a, establish a stronghold inside of the 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 external security perimeter so i mean these are these are real problems they're not like oh my god the sky is falling you know windows has a you know a zero day exploit scale problem but but in terms of how they affect individual users either either everybody who is using a certain vulnerable blogging site or People who are being socially engineered, where there's you know someone trying to get you, and you know these sorts of problems, if they find out what sites you visit and then cross-reference that versus known vulnerabilities, they have a way of targeting people. And it's also worth mentioning that you notice that we were seeing okay, what I those 28 problems I read just from last month, um, and you know and, and didn't go back any further. I mean, this is always happening. So one of the problems is that many sites that will be using these web packages are not updating them at the same rate or level of frequency, if ever, that Microsoft is updating Windows. So the other thing that's on in you know that is is um, helping Windows is that we are all now slaved to this you know second Tuesday of the month, if not sooner <laughs> or, or up, first tuesday if it needs to be <laughs> yes uh, exactly um update paradigm whereas many of these uh shopping cart and blogging and and you know you know web 2.0 tools they install them they get them running and then the developer you know his contract runs out or he's off to do something else they're not being maintained at the same level that windows is so many sites that will talk about the versions of their PHP, whatever it is they're running, the hackers look at that and they go, okay, cool, we can hack this anytime we want. And they just sort of leave it there. These problems tend not to get found because they're not huge, world-shaking problems. They're little, specific, sort of like vertical problems that can be exploited whenever a hacker has an opportunity or for whatever reason needs to. But they exist all over the internet yeah, right now. Yeah. 
Well, and he, uh, I was going to say it's a PHP problem, but then you have the you have some Perl scripts in there too, which run out of CGI dash bin. So it's not that it's purely that it's running out of. It's just you know, a lot of lot of programmers are not used to looking at the inputs and making sure that it's valid and uh, protected. And, and again, and Leo, the, the as I've said before, the psych. I mean, as a developer myself, the psychology of the developer is oh. Can I just get this thing working? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to be done with this. I want to get this working because my boss is breathing down my neck and I'm, I'm already three weeks late. And so there, there isn't that awareness. And, and again, as a developer, I really respect how clever many of these hacks are. For example, there are, there are filters which will, which will attempt to Look for open bracket script close bracket. I mean, that's the most obvious thing you would filter out. But it turns out that there are very clever ways to obscure even that token. You can use all kinds of weird Unicode escape. You can even use, there's even some ways of using some, some permissible script to expand to in, to non-permissible scripting. I mean, it's, you know, so that again, the hackers are sitting here pounding on this, trying to figure out how they can break in, whereas the developers are just happy that the thing seems to work and not crash the server anymore. So, I mean, it's two very different mindsets with, with radically different goals. And, and the big problem is that, that the people who are developing these are not security experts. They're generally, you know, I mean, I talk to people all the time who are barely coders. They go, well, you know, I, I learned PHP in order to implement my own right. blog. Well, that's how own, PHP my, my, was written. It was a personal homepage program designed to do exactly that, to enhance right. so, the blog. I mean, and it, it, it's an easy-to-learn language, so right. it's made for amateurs. Right. So so almost by definition, amateurs are not going to know about this, about all the problems that they're opening themselves and, more importantly, their users of their, their insecure sites to due to the nature of this kind of problem. Well, I'm glad that uh, we can clarify this, and I hope that anybody who's thinking about doing some programming will think about validating user input, because clearly that's where the problem uh, lies. And, yes, th- and that is the nature of it. I've got three really good links on our show notes for for this week. Um, a couple white papers that talk about this in more detail, show code samples so people can actually see yeah, how this good, works good. in in real life. And the third link is to a a really nice consortium. I think they're about, uh, boy, I don't know, 80-some members. It's OWASP, O-W-A-S-P, the Open Web Application Security Project. This is an organization clearly formed because of the recognition of, you know, this kind of real pervasive problem. There's a bunch of utilities there. They've got some scanners and some 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 tools and guidelines. And so if we do have, I'm sure we do have, I know we have, in fact, because I know some of them, they, they, they've written to me, web designers who are listening to security now, and this episode has really caught your attention, uh, I, I highly recommend, it's the third link on the Security Now notes for this episode 86, or just put in OWASP, O-W-A-S-P, into Google, and you'll get there. And they've got a whole bunch of great resources. Excellent. GRC.com. That's the place to go. As long as I'm pointing you to places to go, I might remind you that this podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Astaro, the ultimate uh, security folks. They really are good. The Astaro security gateway is used by many businesses to protect themselves. And now version 7 just came out, and it has so many nice new features the usual, of course, antivirus, anti-spyware, content filtering, uh, IM and P2P control, network firewall, remote access and VPN, intrusion protection. But they've now added encryption and decryption at the server side so that no additional software is required by your users. Uh, they have now secure remote access via SSL VPN, the easiest to implement. And, of course, they scale very well. You can cluster up to 10 different Xcaro uh, security gateways together, eliminating the need to install additional load balancing. It's patent-pending technology, actually. It increases the speed and reliability of your network. As your network grows, so does Astaro. Don't forget, you can get a free trial by calling 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, 877-4-Astaro in your business. And if you're a home non-commercial user, those home licenses now have been extended in the V7 package. You get everything. The base License plus all subscriptions and a Starro up to date. That used to be 79 euros per year. Now it's free for up to 10 
IPs, 10 users, and 1,000 concurrent connections. So a Starro security gateway for the home user is an incredible deal. If you've got an old PC lying around, highly recommended. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. We thank them so much for their support. So we've wrapped another uh, sucker up here. And uh, uh, well done, I must say, Steve. I, I am fascinated by the subject. Are we done with cross network across uh, server side scripting or is it going to be well we we're, we're we're done we're done with this but next week i want to talk about another equally troublesome remote injection this is not the same the of, of the same sort though this is called sql injection or sql injection oh, and there and oh yeah a big problem I, I i've been subject to that myself a lot of uh, forums had problems with sql injections um, okay, that'll be next week on Security Now. For transcripts of this edition and uh, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired, go to Steve's site, grc.com. That's where you'll find his show notes, those links he mentioned, and of course, his great program, SpinWrite, which is really the file, uh, a rather disk uh, maintenance and recovery utility. Just ask the nerds on site, they know. S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E.info for testimonials or grc.com to buy yourself a copy. Steve, we'll wrap this thing up. With uh, any luck, we won't have any emergency updates between now and next Thursday, and we'll see you uh, next Thursday on Security Now. Right, Leo. Security Now.